Assemble, crew! This is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. If you're a nerd, and if you're not, you walked into the wrong podcast, son. But if you are, you know that this is a huge weekend for nerdery. The Battle of Winterfell is on Game of Thrones. Oh, it's going to be great. Say, why are they putting all those defenseless people in the crypts when we got a necromancer around? Uh, no, anyway, uh, for real, Avengers Endgame is out this weekend, and whether or not you're a comics fan, you're probably a fan or have at least enjoyed some of the great films from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No spoilers for Endgame on this show, so don't worry. Hashtag don't spoil the Endgame, but I am a comic fan, and I'd have you know, if you didn't already, that there is a long-storied history of Star Trek stories in comics. Not stand-up comics, like my guest on last week's episode, Asterios Kokonos, but comic books. Kirk, Spock, Picard, Cisco, Janeway, even Kelvin Universe, Kirk and Spock, Michael Burnham, Saru, and their mirror versions have all appeared in the many iterations of Star Trek comics over the years. And as a way of celebrating the release of Avengers Endgame and the impressive accomplishment of Marvel in bringing their much-loved characters to life, I thought I'd check out a Star Trek comic by Marvel, specifically Star Trek Unlimited, a series from the 90s featuring both the TNG and TOS crew. That's coming right up. Stay tuned after that to hear about what's coming up on next week's show. Star Trek and comics, it's two times the nerd this week, so let's get underway. Trek comics have been around nearly as long as the show itself has been. The comics company Gold Key held the Star Trek license in the late 60s and published Star Trek stories from 1967 until 1978. The Gold Key stories were barely connected to anything that happened on the series. Uh, They took Kirk, Spock, Scotty, Enterprise, etc. and just ran with it, which wasn't uncommon at the time. Marvel Comics did something similar with the Star Wars property in 1977. This was before Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi um, or tie-in novels or anything else. So Luke, Leia, and Han just had a bunch of adventures that the writers made up with no real input from Lucasfilm. Uh, At that time, writer and editors Roy Thomas and Archie Goodwin were writing Star Wars for Marvel. Back at Gold Key, we don't really know who was writing the Star Trek comics because the writers weren't always credited, although comics legend Len Wein did write a dozen or so of them. Wein helped create Wolverine and Swamp Thing, and he helped revamp the X-Men along with artist Dave Cockrum in the 70s. The art for almost all the Gold Key comics was by Italian artist Alberto Giolitti, and the covers were kind of cool. Instead of being drawn, they took advantage of being tied in with the TV show, and they mostly featured stills of the characters in the show in various situations. They were all blended together with some seriously 60s graphic design. They make great retro posters like the kind you'd see on Pinterest or somewhere on the internet. After Star Trek The Motion Picture debuted in 1979, Marvel Comics took over the license, continuing the stories of the crew seen in the film. Literally, the licensing Marvel had 
only allowed them to use the characters specifically from the film, and the first three issues were an adaptation of the motion picture, drawn by the aforementioned Dave Cockrum. After that, the adventures of the older TOS crew continued, written initially by another comics legend, Marv Wolfman, creator of Blade, Bullseye, the New Teen Titans, and he wrote Crisis on Infinite Earths, along with artist George Perez. The Marvel series only ran 18 issues, but the TOS movie crew would return to comics soon. Also, in the late 60s and early 70s, Star Trek comic strips ran in the U.S. and also in the U.K. in some newspapers. Um, You know, ask your parents what those are, newspapers. There was also a series of photo comics or photo novels from Bantam Books in the late 70s. I and my guests have mentioned them sometimes on the show. This is where they take stills from TOS episodes and basically retell the episode's story in photo comic form. And they were pretty cool. Something I really liked about them, and I had a few of them. I had the um, Tribble one, the Trouble with Tribbles one, and I think um, the Piece of the Action one. Uh, both episodes were covered previously on our show. Uh, they were cool because the writers would add a little extra dialogue sometimes. It was mostly expository, but without the motions of the show, sometimes the exposition in the episode needed a little help. So we'd get like characters' thought balloons sometimes. You know, if it doesn't move, you can't necessarily get that uh, someone looks at someone else distrustingly look. So you get them thinking, hmm, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't trust this guy. I trust him less than a Mugato with a bunch of bananas. You know, fun stuff like that. After Marvel, the Trek license went to DC. And this is where it really starts to pick up. From 1984 to 1996, DC published the continuing adventures of the TOS crew. And a lot of talented people worked on those books. Uh, writers like Mike W. Barr. Uh, again, Len Wein, who is now with DC, Peter David, who, you know that name, he's written a ton of Trek books, and Mike Carlin as well. Also guest writers like Diane Duane and Robert Greenberger, former Discoverage guest, and Gordon Purcell drew a lot of the later issues. Gordon is a former guest on this show. We talked about the Tholian web last year. Go listen to that episode. He's a really nice guy. He's smart, too. He won 50 grand on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. The DC run was really fascinating, and it was a little weird. It followed the post-Wrath of Khan Enterprise crew, and the writers went nuts creating all new characters. Uh, They brought in animated series characters like Emress and Eric's, and they were doing storylines that referenced uh, TOS episodes like A Piece of the Action and Wolf in the Fold and Tomorrow's Yesterday, continuing those stories into comic form. It was weird because they were running concurrently with the release of the Trek films in the 80s, and they didn't have any hard creative restrictions, at least not at first. But they had this thing where every time a new movie came out, they had to rejigger the continuity to line up with the films. So like Star Trek Three, at the end, no more Enterprise, right? So in the comics, they have to figure out a whole thing where the crew gets assigned to another ship. But at the end of Star Trek Four, new Enterprise, Enterprise A. So now they have to find a way to get everybody back on the Enterprise A. <laughs> comics, everybody! Also, licensing everybody, Malibu Comics got the rights to DS9 in 1993 and began publishing a series based on that. Mike W. Barr began writing initially on that, with Gordon Purcell doing the art. That series lasted until 1995. A Voyager comic was in the works at Malibu, but never came to fruition. In 1996, Marvel once again took up the Trek license, and they went nuts with it. Uh, Trek had two shows on the air. Uh, The TNG movies were in the theaters. It was a big time for Trek, and I smell money. My name is Bob Harris, and I'm the editor-in-charge at Marvel, by the way. 
Marvel immediately began publishing some Trek one-shots, the Star Trek Unlimited ongoing series, a DS9 book, a Voyager book, a series called Early Voyages, which followed the adventures of Captain Pike's Enterprise, take notice Discovery Season 2 fans, and Starfleet Academy, which... No. Why does everybody want to make Starfleet Academy a thing? I don't get it. Help me, Harv Bennett. Help me understand. Anyway, all of this got started with a one-shot featuring a crossover between Star Trek and the X-Men, of all people. Like, why not Nova or Adam Warlock? I mean, they're in space. Anyway, the X-Men were huge at this point, of course. It was written by Scott Lobdell, the writer, or at least the writer of some of the X-Men at the time, and it was penciled by various people, including former longtime X-Men artist Mark Silvestri. The new Marvel Star Trek line only lasted around 18 months because Marvel was in trouble financially, guys. They were canceling things right and left, and Trek got the axe. And as far as our recap of Star Trek comics go, I think we're going to call it here. Star Trek and comics goes way beyond this. Maybe we'll do some more in a future show. Actually, you know, definitely we will. But this is our stop because the comic we're talking about today is from this era. It's the first issue of Star Trek Unlimited, number one, from November 1996. The first story in this issue is a TNG tale titled Directives. It was written by Dan Abnett and Ian Edgington. And those names are significant. Uh, specifically, Dan Abnett is significant for a lot of his comics and books work. Uh, I think he had to start at uh, 2000 AD Comics and then went on to write for Marvel and also uh, DC. And he is probably best known for, um, or at least in my mind, uh, for creating the uh, Marvel Cosmic side. Not creating. Sorry, Jim Starlin. Not creating but creating the uh, Marvel Annihilation event and the things that sort of spun off of that. And he also rebooted and sort of reintroduced into continuity the Guardians of the Galaxy, which, of course, went on to become huge with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And those versions of the characters that you see of the Guardians in the Marvel films really come from his um, original miniseries and then later his Marvel Annihilation event. So, yeah, he's a great writer. He used to work with um, Andy Lanning. Uh, They're not really a partnership anymore, but the two of them are really responsible for a lot of the uh, Marvel cosmic stuff that you see in the, I think it's like the late 90s, early teens, maybe, maybe or not, not late 90s, late aughts, early teens uh, of uh, Marvel cosmic stuff that is now um, poised, the Marvel Cinematic Universe it seems poised to really start exploring. And those are um, some pretty good books. Uh, where's... Where's Nova? Where's Adam Warlock? Where's Moondragon? Let's get these guys in there. Where's uh, Philo Vell? I want to see all these characters in the movies in the next 10 years of Marvel movies. But back to Star Trek. This original story is also penciled by Ron Randall and Carlos Garzon and also Jerome Moore. And it's inked by Al Williamson and Derek Fisher. I also mentioned Ian Edgington. I should probably talk about him, too. Uh, he's also a comic book writer and also a author as well. And he's probably known best for his uh, steampunk work. Uh, he co-created uh, Scarlet Traces with uh, the artist Israeli, which is like a sequel to The War of the Worlds. And he also has done some Judge Dredd work, and he's done um, a lot of 40K, uh, Warhammer 40K stuff too, uh, as well as uh, Dr. Chris Dows has done that, a former guest on the show. So uh, in this issue, uh, the Enterprise-D has arrived at the planet Andrella, 
which is an M-class planet. Uh, it's far, far deep into uh, Federation space. And the native race of Andrella, the Endril, are about to achieve interstellar flight, or at least uh, interstellar travel. And so the Enterprise is here on a mission of first contact. And when they pull up into orbit, they find that the entire planet is being uh, rocked, rocked by a global natural disaster. Something is going on. It seems like it is some kind of natural phenomenon. But some scanning work by data reveals that it is not true. It is actually artificial. And they send a away team down uh, made up of Riker, Worf, Geordi, and Ensign Redshirt. Um, they uh, find, basically they find these um, technological structures which are drilling into the planet and are causing these seismic disturbances. And this is where we start to see that the um, the art in the issue is uh, pretty good. It's, you know, it's got that sort of like mid-90s kind of, we're not spending a lot of time on this, we got to hit a schedule, so it's not like there is a lot of detail to it, but it's clear that the uh, various pencilers are paying attention. Um, at this point, it's 1996, so we all... You know, we know the face of Captain Picard better than we know, you know, the face of our own mother. And so they do a pretty good job of um, sketching out the characters. And then the art has a, like a neat kind of more darker cinematic style to it. Even as the Enterprise is uh, pulling into um, orbit, um, they've done a lot of work uh, on the colors. And the colors are by um, Team Bucci, <laughs> which I am not familiar with. Uh, but they are uh, doing this sort of like mid-90s computer color to show that the Enterprise is sort of uh, lightly or wanly uh, lit on one side and then this deep um, reflective orange on the other side that is reflecting the planet. It's the kind of thing that you don't get on TV effects or TV lighting, so it, it, looks, it looks pretty good. Um, on the planet, the away team is scanning this structure, and it's an entire structure. They determine that... Uh, they, they call it a seismic resonator, essentially. And they also figure out that the seismic resonators, these, these strange structures, are not Endrel technology. They're not the technology of the people on this planet. They're not doing this to themselves. And they're trying to figure out whose it is. Uh, as they are trying to do that, around the corner comes a very tall and thin, uh, yellow-skinned and sort of yellowish-green-eyed alien who's like, what are you guys doing here? Get out of here. He looks like something. He looks like a um, something from the Green Lantern Corps or something like that. And he grabs Riker. He's like, "You gotta get out of here!" And Worf <laughs> zaps the guy, stuns him. Guy hits his head, falls down, uh, which is not how phasers are supposed to work. Uh, it's just to be safe. And uh, Worf is basically like, uh, well, "Are you okay?" And Riker says, uh, "Yeah, I can fight my own battles." It's like, "Okay, Riker. All right. Why don't you just?" He did his job. He did his job. Uh, now we're going to beam this guy directly to sickbay, which they do. Uh, Dr. Crusher and Nurse Ogawa immediately start ministering to him. And Captain asks, uh, if, you know, if there's anything that she can tell him about their alien guest. And she does not know. She can do what she can. He has a similar anatomy to what she's seen before. So she's going to treat him. But uh, we don't really know. It's touch and go because she doesn't have specific data. She knows for a fact, though. I guess you can tell through genetic scans or maybe the uh, advanced work that they've done on the Andrellans that this is not an Andrellan. He is not from the planet Andrella. So we've got something of a mystery on our hands. We've got these giant yellow aliens who are here to sabotage uh, the planet of Andrella for some reason. Uh, Captain Picard is called to the bridge. He gets to the bridge 
and we find out that an unidentified vessel is dropping out of warp. I put it on screen, and it is huge. It is a gigantic ship. Uh, it's kind of like Romulan warbirdy looking. Um, for some reason, we uh, we the Federation seem to like our round, you know, organic looking hulls, but everything's kind of attached. But they have a sort of superstructure, and then they've got one of those like cutouts where, like the uh, warbirds, like you wonder, are there any like crew or cargo compartments in the sort of wings that go, you know, to the outside of it? Is it all in the superstructure where people live and work? Uh, but this is kind of like that. It looks like the Enterprise could fly through like the hole in this in this donut here. And uh, Data also remarks that the technology on this ship is very similar to that of the seismic. Uh, disruptors that they have seen on the planet. Uh, Worf, of course, wants to raise shields, but the captain, being ever diplomatic, says, no, we're not going to do that. And on screen, they're hailing us. It looks like more of the yellow aliens. Uh, and the chief one introduces himself as Designate Obel. He's the chief decisionary of the LOM cruiser, the Molod. And he wants to know what is going on here. Uh, Picard tells him, hey, we're here to talk to these guys. We're going to make first contact. And Chief Decisionary Obol says, uh, so are we. Hey, that's great. Uh, our two superior races can meet this way. Uh, that's not problematic language at all. And so the Picard, uh, ever, of course, diplomatic, invites them for a chat on the Enterprise D. And Designate Obol agrees, and they are to meet. Picard does that thing where he turns to the crew and goes, okay, quick, quick, give me some information here before I have to go do this thing. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of little ticks that you see in this. Uh, Abnet uh, and uh, Edgington are very familiar. I mean, as we all were with the characters. But there's a part where uh, they're trying to uh, debate like this course of action, and <laughs> Jordy, it's a strategic thing. Jordy doesn't have anything to really add. It's not an engineering thing, but he's like, boy, that sounds like a really tough choice. It's just like I can totally hear LeVar Burton saying that. Anyway. Uh, Picard turns around and he says, uh, so uh, what do you think we're going to do here? Uh, Troy is like, oh, I guess we're going to get two first contacts for the price of one. So that seems very efficient. Uh, Data does point out that there are some records. I don't know why their information is sketchy, but I guess there are sketchy records of there being a very uh, significant civilization in this area, but they've never made contact before. He also points out that the ship is better than us. Like they're, they have high technology. So if we get into a conflict, uh, we're not going to win, which is very, <laughs> no, no, I guess we're going to spoil because I'm going to go to the end of the story and tell you the whole thing. But I'll just let you know right now, that's a very kind of TV thing. They always like, it, it's good because it puts uh, our people in threat or at least has um, the, the threatening version of a, of a ticking clock. Uh, on TV, you do that so at the end of the story, you don't have to depict a battle because you can't afford to. In a comic, you can just draw a battle. It doesn't cost you anything, um, but that isn't exactly what happens at the end, end of this. Uh, we meet in the conference room with the aliens, and they brought some gifts. They brought them uh, these sort of weird-looking pink crystal things, and immediately Picard's like, oh boy, I'm sorry, I guess we should have got you some gifts. And the aliens say, hey, don't worry about it. We, we like to share our art and achievement and stuff like that. We just brought these, thought you might like them. Troy says, well, we can replicate you some. And they're like, mm, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Picard says, okay, well, we got to get down to brass tacks here. Uh, first things first, uh, we have a member of your crew on board. He was hurt. 
uh, during an encounter with our away team. Um, he's doing okay. He's stable. But if we knew more about you guys, uh, we could help fix you, which is an altruistic request. But it's also like, you know, you it's like fishing them. It's like social engineering them. It's like you give us the information that we want about you. But the aliens are like, yeah, sure. We'll give you whatever you want. You know, here you go. And if you know what, if he's too sick, uh, you can take care of him on your ship. Don't worry about getting him to us right away. It's fine. We trust you. So um, strike two, I guess, or not the opposite of a strike. Uh, not strike two. Uh, these guys seem kind of nice. Then Picard drops the bomb. Uh, he's like, okay. And then the last thing, you've got these things on the surface. Um, they are basically uh, causing major disturbances in like the tectonic plates. Uh, they're, they're malfunctioning, right? And the aliens are like, no, they're working. They're exactly right. That's, that's how we want them to work. We want to create a drastic environmental change, which is like, dun, dun, dun. that's where the uh, act break would come in, I suppose. Uh, we cut down to the planet's surface. Riker, Geordi, and a team of engineers are examining the disruptors and are trying to figure out a way to stop them from doing what they're doing. Geordi reiterates that these things are working. Uh, there's probably a bunch of them. They only show this one, but there's a bunch of them across the planet and they are working together to basically create a massive seismic upheaval, which would cause volcanoes and seismic activity. There'd be a global ash cover that would essentially create a nuclear winter situation. And he says, um, it's, this isn't even terraforming. Like this is, he calls it vandalism. They're basically just smashing this planet. Uh, and they can't figure out why. Uh, as soon as uh, he gets done saying that, a group of the Green Lantern aliens shows up and is like, what are you doing? You know, you got to get out of here. We don't want to hurt you, but you got to go. And uh, Jordy starts to like tinker with the thing and the guys pull out guns. And then suddenly it's like, whoop, get us out of here. Beam us up. Uh, the away team gets out of there. Uh, back in the conference room, they're talking about uh, what the situation and data points out. And this is a little lost thing. I guess this could happen on a TV episode as well. But uh, I guess Data's been like kind of researching on this. And he basically comes up with a solution or a theory, at least, which is that these aliens, the, the LOMs, um, they have <laughs> this is this is neat. They have a class of psychohistorians. Uh, anybody who's familiar with Asimov will recognize that. And the way that they interact with the galaxy is that they predict and extrapolate what the future will be based on psychohistory and statistical probability. And they see it as their duty to interfere in other cultures. So if, for instance, um, there was a populace of a planet that was sick, um, they would like, you know, a third of the populace has this disease or even a weakness to a disease. They would just wipe out that third of the population. The population is stronger. They keep going. Or say there's a sun that's going to blow up in 50,000 years instead of just, you know, letting a society or a culture wait until they can figure it out themselves or they're just killed by this sun going nova. They would basically just like force at gunpoint everybody into a ship and then take them to another planet. Uh so they basically have like the opposite of the prime directive. They have like the uh, prime imperative uh, ding, write that down. Um, so they, we were setting up this clash of ideologies. You know, the Federation wants to never interfere uh, or interfere benevol benevolently with permission. And this culture is the opposite. And 
from all for all we, we, that we see, the Lom are completely um, benevolent in their own way. They are non-hostile and non-threatening, but this is just the way that they run it, and this is not the way that we do it in the Federation. And so now we get into our own classic First, uh, First Amendment <laughs> prime directive. You gotta let these guys speak. Uh, prime directive discussion. Uh, one of the you know things that you get on the show very often, where the whole main crew is is talking about this, and they're bouncing it back and forth, and they're talking about how we can't interfere because the Andrellans uh, are haven't been contacted, and also we're sort of having a first um, contact with the Lom. My interpretation of this is the Lom don't the the normal like prime directive things don't apply. The Lom are already a uh, star-spanning culture. They themselves are interfering. And at this point, I think, wouldn't the prime directive go from passive to active? Kind of like how, to bring up Asimov, the laws of robots are you can't hurt a human. You can't allow a human to be hurt through your inaction. You can't watch a human get hurt. I always assumed that the prime directive would kind of work like that. Like, say that you had symbiosis. That's where you've got the space farmers are being exploited with drugs for from the space uh, country club people and ultimately they've got interplanetary travel but not really interstellar travel i don't think they really have like a warp drive so you should not get involved in that even though these guys are like totally ringing these guys out with drugs but this is a situation where i don't know like the borg you wouldn't say well we can't interfere with the borg so just let them assimilate you go no don't assimilate them in tokens like they need a chance to develop on their own but we have a broad um, interpretation of the prime directive because Picard likes to consider all sides. And so that's the situation that we're in. Jordy says that we've rigged up these like neutrino beams, basically, and we can just shoot all these um, these seismic agitators on the surface. That'll stop the effect. Everything will be fine. But Data points out, yeah, it's that would be a great thing to do. That would absolutely get us into a war. So Picard's... It's weighing on him. He asks the doctor uh, how their patient is doing. And she says, uh, he's actually doing pretty good. The Obol sent us, um, or Obol sent us that data. And so we've got medical data on them. And I think he's going to be fine. We'll be able to send him home in about an hour. So we've got an hour. We go to Picard's, uh, uh, his office. And he is talking to Obol on his little uh, laptop screen. And they're having a a continuation of this discussion where he is saying, look, I don't want I have respect for your culture. I don't want to stop you guys from doing what you're doing, but I I don't think we can let you do this. And Obel is saying the same thing. He's like, yeah, same. Like, we have to do this. I don't want to hurt you, but you can't stand in our way. This is the right thing to do. And we get a scene that for me really shows that these guys, um, Edgerton and uh, Abnett, understand Trek, uh, or TNG at least, is that you have a thing where Troy comes in and she's, it's the whole like, knock, knock, got a minute? She comes in and he just says, you know, um, I understand that this is a problem, you know, if you want to talk to me. Picard, you know, I can imagine him, they don't draw it, but, you know, face palming a little, and he's like, this is, this is tough, how do I choose between the two evils? And Troy actually has a real kind of sanguine <laughs> outlook on it. She's she based, she brings up actually uh, the episode The Chase from TNG about how you know the preserve the preservers millions of years ago 
uh, put DNA onto these planets or into these other beings and interfered with any, uh, you know, the entire galaxy. If they hadn't, we wouldn't be here. I'm not really sure if that's the Beta Z interpretation of the Prime Directive, but she does have a point. We all can't help but interfere when we explore. Uh, eventually, um, and she, well, I should say that she uh, encourages Picard. She says, you know, I know you're going to do the right thing because I watch this show. Crusher calls up to Picard and says, hey, you got to come down to sickbay. I got to show you something right away. And he does go down there. Um, she, it's one of those scenes where she tells him what it is. And this happens on TV too. But we don't find out what it is. Cut to a few minutes later, I guess an hour later, uh, Picard is back in the bridge. He calls uh, Obol on the Lom ship and says, hey, uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm going to let you know that we are going to beam your guy back. Boop. Okay, we did that. And here we go. We're deactivating all your things. Uh, and that's done. And immediately Obol's like, what, what are you doing? We told you not to do this. You, you, you turned all of our things off. We have to fight now. And Picard says, bop, 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 bop. Check this out. I'm also going to send you some of this bio data that you sent us. Look at the highlighted uh, marks, courtesy of my doctor. Uh, my doctor was looking at your blood work, and she found a congenital defect in your blood. And if you guys don't do anything with this, it will basically magnify, and within a thousand years, your race could be wiped out by this problem. And then he basically does a little Picard posturing. He's like, oh, it's a good thing that she found that, you know, in your superior blood. Um, maybe you guys should, uh, you know, put your own house in order before you start blowing up other planets. And right away, the guy's like, oh, boy. Yeah, I got to think about this. Yeah, I guess we got to fix this. OK, thanks. Thanks. All right, we're going to go. We're going to go. <laughs> and they beam up all their things and they just take off. And normally that's when you would just go, boom, right to credits and we're out. But we actually get a um, captain's closing log, uh, which I never really did on the show. I kind of wonder what would happen if they had done more closing logs uh, in the original series. And then it, it sort of stretched out into the other franchises or other shows. But basically, he just says, he just sums up. He just says, you know, I get it. Like, they have a, they're benevolent, but they're kind of arrogant. They mean well. But we held a mirror up to them and showed them that they had a problem. And in, in a way, they are a mirror for us. And he mentions that as well. He says, you know, I hope that we don't become that way someday. And that's it. I mean, it's nice. You would need some kind of subplot. Data's cat has a cold or something if you were going to do this as a TNG episode. But otherwise, like, this is a good pitch. Like, I wonder if this was maybe a pitch if Abnett or Edgerton ever pitched to, uh, to Paramount. But it's, like, not a bad idea for a Star Trek episode. I was really impressed. So, yeah, it's good. I still want to see the Enterprise fly through that donut, though. Okay, the second story in this issue is a TOS tale titled Dying of the Light. It was also written by Dan Abnett and Ian Edgington and was penciled by Mark Buckingham. It's a name that should seem familiar to you, mostly because of his work on Fables. He worked with Bill Willingham on Fables for a long time. He also penciled Marvel Man uh, when Neil Gaiman was writing it. And also did some work, uh, probably around the same time, on Sandman as well. Uh, he did the two Death miniseries as well, if you remember those. Uh, Sandman spinoffs, The High Cost of Living, and The Time of Your Life. And he also um, did some issues of Hellblazer, too. So, yeah, uh, I'm a big fan. Big fan of Buckingham. Uh, good to see his work in this. Uh, we open above a planet. The Enterprise, uh, the original Enterprise, is locked in combat with some vessels, which we find out to be Gorn vessels. 
and this is not good. Um, they're doing okay, but not great. This battle is uh, a pitched battle, and Kirk says, let's let's hail them. And a Gorn comes on screen, and this is <laughs> Willingham's uh, pencils are like right after the initial um, sort of title page uh, with the credits, we go to a uh, two-page splash, which is nice. It shows already that Willingham's got a pretty good grasp of like the setting of TOS. I don't think he does a great job on the faces. He's kind of doing his own thing. Uh, you know who everybody is, but it's not like he's uh, trying to photorealistically recreate the faces. But it doesn't it doesn't slow you down at all. But it's a great looking set and everything. And the Gorn come on screen. And it turns out this is a Gorn called Salath or Slath, Salath maybe, uh, who is the Gorn that Kirk fought in the episode Arena when they were pitted against each other by the Metrons. Although, uh, I'm not sure how much time has passed, but Salath is, uh, he's looking uh, hes looking big. Uh, he's had too many flies. He looks fat. I'm saying he looks fat. But anyway, uh, he informs the Enterprise that, of course, uh, no matter what their uh, previous uh, encounters have been like, uh, they have defiled the Gorn's faith and uh, have uh, earned a swift death. And Kirk says, no, wait a minute, we are just on a mercy mission. And then we get two hours earlier, which is, that puts this squarely in mid-90s storytelling, doesn't it? Because that would never have happened on TOS. Uh, everything takes place linear, linearly. There's only one flashback I can even think of off the top of my head in uh, TOS, in the episode Dagger of the Mind. But that's okay. Um, the rest of the uh, issue uh, is, is very TOS, and I'll point out how. Right now, two hours earlier, it looks like we are pulling into orbit over Lotora 3, where a dis distress beacon uh, is located uh, in the northern hemisphere and the ship is scanning for it. They find this distress beacon and go into orbit and Spock, looking in the old science viewmaster, has found something strange in orbit of the planet. Uh, he's found uh, spheres, a huge uh, thousand meter circumference spheres that appear to be fashioned from stone. Um, they're artificial, and they are maintaining orbit through some kind of uh, magnetic uh, resonance. Um, magnets, how do they work? They're keeping them up in orbit. Um, there's a great little uh, detail of Spock looking in the Viewmaster, and then <laughs> just like, it's, this is, like I said, like, Abnett and Nejedin have, like, they know TNG, and they know TOS, and they put all these little moments in to make it really feel like an episode. And so we've got, Kirk uh, signing with his left hand. Is Kirk left-handed? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, because I didn't know that. And uh-oh, um, I, I should check on that. But anyway, uh, he's signing a uh, clipboard that a yeoman's giving him. <laughs> and he's smiling at her and she's smiling at him. Uh, so anyway, we uh, we look at these stone spheres. And they're interesting. They have these like pictograms on them. Uh, Spock theorizes that they're some kind of buoys. We're not exactly sure what they are. And they've been there for half a million years. Which is a long time. Um, Uhura informs uh, the captain that they have got a fix on the beacon. They're ready. And so the captain assembles an away team. He wants McCoy and Spock, of course, to come with him. Spock says, uh, permission to stay aboard. Captain, I would like to examine the writing on the in the pictograms more. And Kirk says, yeah, okay, I guess we'll, we'll be fine. <laughs> so, so they beam down uh, to the planet, which is a jungle-like planet with a um, very Incan-looking ziggurat formation. Um, there are these stone sort of gods uh, who look kind of crocodile-y, so we're heading somewhere with that for sure. Uh, and they're also finding more of this pictogram script. And as soon as they beam down, they meet a scientist. 
And this is a typical marooned scientist. He's got a beard, which would be there, I don't know, maybe on an academic in the 60s, but that means, you know, no razor, no civilization. And he's got one of those shirts with the sleeves are ripped off. Oh, the sleeves are ripped off. This guy's living rough. His name is Holm Bainan. He introduces himself as a professor at the University of Chicago Field Archaeology Program. And Kirk says, you're a little far out for a field trip. Uh, waka waka. And uh, Bainan says um, he has found uh, you know, a find of amazing significance. He has found many artifacts, but he's going to need a shuttle to beam them back. He's worried about them passing through a... Um, a transporter beam. Uh, the doctor is checking him out. <laughs> and he's got this great D. Kelly kind of frown on. And Kirk says, uh, okay, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of it. Don't worry. Uh, go Get back to what you're doing. And so he goes off and he's like, uh, what'd what you find, Bones? And Bones is like, oh, it's 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 fascinating, Jim. It's it's very, it's damn perplexing. Uh, perplexing. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's totally healthy. Like he's not malnourished. Um, he's, he, you know, there's, he doesn't suffer from exposure. He doesn't have any jungle diseases. So I don't know what's going on with him. And that's weird. But we all decide to go back to the ship. Uh, they're back on the ship. Spock informs the captain that he has got a basic dis- uh, description of the language going. And he says that it's a, it's a very old language. But the markers uh, on the spheres denote the world uh, to be named Cenotaph which is a word for basically like a, a grave marker or a gravestone. And he says, we may have uh, basically sacrilege. We may have trespassed on a funeral world, uh, specifically a Gorn cemetery world. Bad news. It's bad news for everybody. Uh, this is the moment that Bones comes up to the bridge and he says, uh, I've run a full test on him. And the reason that he is so healthy is because he's got He's just got a slew of antiviral agents, uh, you know, and antibacterial agents. Um, He's basically like came here ready to, you know, he came here prepared. Like it seems like he knew what he was getting into. He knew that he would be, quote unquote, stranded on this planet and got himself uh, ready to be stranded. So something that we don't understand here. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, the captain receives a message from cargo bay or from the shuttle bay saying that uh, Bainan is... Uh, fussing with the crews who are unloading uh, the, the shuttlecraft of the artifacts, and it could Kirk come down? And he's like, "Yeah, gladly, I'll, I'll gladly come down." He heads down there and meets up with Scotty, and Bainan immediately says, uh, "Your, you, you know, your crew is being horrible with my artifacts." And Kirk's like, "Oh, very well, crew. Be very careful when you load them back in the shuttle, and we're taking them back to the planet." And Bainan's like, "What? What are you talking about? You, you can't do this. this is a betrayal of science." And Kirk's got a great line here that I could totally imagine Gene Kuhn or someone writing. He says, climb down off that high horse before you fall and hurt yourself, Professor. <laughs> he tells Spock to give him the juice. And Spock says, uh, we looked up your, uh, cr- your credentials and you're not some explorer. You're actually the chair of extraterrestrial anthropology at the University of Colorado with a specialty in Gorn. So you knew what you were doing. You basically came here to rob this place of its artifacts. Uh, Bainan basically owns up to it, but he says something intriguing. He says that his basically his entire life's work as a um, exo-anthropologist has been to prove that um, a species like the Gorn is an evolutionary end product that is similar to mammals on Earth, but came from uh, Dinosauria instead, which is something that's explored in Voyager, if I'm not mistaken. 
but he says, um, you know, and that's what I'm working towards. Um, I think it's it's worth it. Uh, Spock actually says, yeah, that seems pretty cool, but uh, it, we're not going to be able to confirm that because the Gorn don't like to talk to us. And Bainan thinks that his actions um, or the means uh, justify his ends in this case. And he's invited the uh, Enterprise or a starship like it to come to the planet through Distress Beacon to serve as his getaway car, basically. So uh, Kirk's really unhappy about this, of course. This is when the Gorn attack begins. And we're basically catching up at this point uh, to the two hours before, in this case, two hours later. So they throw Bannon in the brig. And now we have to figure out how to keep from starting an international incident with the Gorn. Uh, we go back to the conversation between Salath and Kirk. And Salath basically tells him, um, this is it. Like, you, you got to surrender to our law or you're going to be white from the stars. And Kirk says, we surrender. Like, he, he surrenders. Nobody can believe it. And he says, give me an hour to get everything ready. And then we will beam to the planet. And you can do what you want with us. And so Spock is basically like, intriguing. Um, so we're going to surrender. Kirk says, we have no other choice to do this. You know, we are in this situation. It's a very TOS situation where we find ourselves, you know, violating some law, some statute or something like that. And so how do we make everybody happy uh, without getting ourselves in trouble or getting killed or killing other people? And Spock is like, so you don't really, Kirk says like, we surrendered, but really I need this hour to, to figure it out. It's a very Kirk thing. And Spock says, well, you know, you, you said that you surrendered. The Gorn are very honorable. Doesn't this seem dishonorable? <laughs> and Kirk's like, oh, I have my fingers crossed. It's a white lie. And we got a great Spock moment. And he's like, I, I failed to see how color might alter the duplicity of your statement. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> so let's uh, let's try to figure this out. They uh, go down and talk to Bainan in the brig. And I think it's neat. It's a guy who starts this whole thing out. Uh, he's basically the inciting incident and the cause of the problem. But in this case, we're going to use him to solve the problem. So they basically grill him on, like, tell us everything you know about the Gorn. We're like, we need some some juice on the Gorn. And he says, you know, the Gorn have the, this very martial, warlike society. It's based on honor and respect. He kind of name checks the the um, Klingons. Basically, he says that, like, a cemetery planet like Latora is like their Stovacor. It's like their Valhalla. And Kirk says, hmm, white people mythology? Hmm, now I'm on board. Valhalla, let's get down there. So they go to meet the Gorn on the surface. Interestingly, we actually get, maybe this is just a filler page, but we actually get a, a switch to the Gorn ship and we get to see Salath's log. And he basically, I mean, it doesn't really add anything, but he just says, you know, they they violated our planet and I have defeated the human Kirk. But I remember this guy from the episode arena <laughs> like he was very resourceful uh i know that something's happening here so i'm gonna keep my compound eyes open on this one so we meet uh, we all meet down on the surface and he says okay very well you've brought the grave goods back you know you got the shuttle here you're unloading all these boxes of the artifacts now time to surrender and kirk says no wait a minute maybe we could uh maybe we could uh talk this out what do we what do we have going on and Salath is not impressed. He immediately calls to his ship to begin firing. But before he can complete the command, Kirk shoots the guy's communicator out of his hand. And he says, oh, this is how you avoid conflict? Human Kirk? <laughs> Which, I mean, he's, he's got a point. He definitely has a point. But this is a TOS episode. We need a... You know, we need a fight scene. So a fight scene ensues. We're dodging phasers. Um... 
Spock is wrestling with a uh, with a Gorn. Finally, our crew is uh, subdued, uh, or at least partially subdued. And Kirk says, "Look, you know, we almost killed each other in the episode arena. We don't have to do that now. We, you know, we want forgiveness." Uh, and he's not interested, uh, the Gorn commander. And so Kirk makes a gesture. He says, you know, we can't, we did do this disrespect, but now we want to show respect. And so he fires on their shuttlecraft. And this, again, this is where you wonder how powerful, they always talk about how powerful hand phasers are. Uh, I guess this is powerful because he basically destroys and melts the shuttlecraft with all the artifacts either inside or nearby. And he um, speaks about, uh, the ancient culture of the Norsemen and their, you know, fiery funerals where they would destroy uh, the dead and their goods as a way of honoring them and sort of giving them up to the gods. And this is something that you can learn from us. Like, isn't that a cool story? We want to learn from you too. And Salath buys it. He's like, hmm, I'd like to hear more about this Norseman. Tell me more about this white mythology of yours. And Kirk says, I'd love to tell you all about it, buddy. And we shake hands. <laughs> It's a, I don't know. It's a great it, – it's funny how you've got Captain Picard and this multicultural crew like tearing their hair out, what there is of it, over possibly making a mistake. And then you go back <laughs> and then they tell a TOS story and it's just so TOS. It's like we need to learn from each other. There, he's even got a speech. It's such a Kirk speech. He's like our peoples should be trying to learn about each other, not not kill each other. Mutual ignorance breeds the violence that has existed between our races. Uh, and learn about our our white culture, our Thor, our blonde people. <laughs> it just it's they're doing a great job of like nailing the sort of voice and tone of uh, the different series. Uh, back on the bridge, we've got one page to have our no trouble at all <laughs> ending, and we kind of get it. We find out that that Goran handshakes um, that's a lot. Uh, it's a little more than you're expecting. So Kirk's got a few broken fingers that McCoy is treating, but it was worth it. And so uh, everything's working out. Spock asks him, you know, if if he really if he really thought that this whole Viking funeral thing would work. And Kirk call back. He says, I, I kept my fingers crossed. And Spock's like, oh, so you it was a lie. And McCoy's like, nah, you just don't get it. <laughs> uh, take us home. Warp three, Mr. Sulu. And off they go. Uh, <laughs> it was fun. This is a really fun uh, set of stories. And it's like I said, once again, it's it's some stories that you feel would just slot right into um, their respective series. You know, I think that they are um, really worth it uh, to check out. Um, this is this was an ongoing series uh, that Edgington and uh, Abnett wrote for uh, wrote a lot of it for and uh, also. Uh, Willingham was on for, or excuse me, Buckingham was on, on for a lot of the penciling as well. And it came out for uh, like bi-monthly, is that bi-weekly? Bi-weekly is every two weeks, bi-monthly every two months. So, and it goes on for a while. Um, I would definitely recommend checking it out uh, if you can get your hands on it. I'm not sure if it's being printed still, but if you can find back issues or buy digital copies online, you should definitely do that. So there you go. I think we've proved that Trek translates to the written and image-accompanied word. We'll talk more about Trek comics on a future show, and there are a lot of them. We'll get to them. Uh, here's a sneak peek. If you like Mr. Saru the way that I do, if you're a true Saruligan, hashtag Saruligans, then you need to read the Star Trek Discovery 2019 annual Captain Saru. 
It's written by disco writer Kirsten Beyer and comics writer Mike Johnson and drawn by Angel Hernandez. It's set just after season one of Discovery. Check this out. Saru is put in command of Discovery after the Klingon War is resolved. There is a distress call. You're the only ship in the quadrant. You know the drill. But what if the drill turns out to be Orion pirates bent on taking your ship and spacing you, hotshot? What do you do? Answer. You be Saru and you show him who's boss. It's a fun comic and a must-own for any Ceruligans. Hashtag Ceruligans. And you can get it on Amazon.com. Click on our link in the show notes. That will take you to Amazon.com where you can purchase Captain Saru and many other Trek comics, novels, and merchandise. When you get to Amazon by clicking through our links or through our Amazon banner at EnterprisingIndividuals.com, a percentage of your transaction comes back to us at no extra cost to you and helps keep the Warp Core lit here. And this will count for anything. It's not just Star Trek stuff. In fact, you can bookmark our banner. And when you click through to Amazon with your bookmark, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. It's a great way to help support the show. Anytime you shop on Amazon.com, please click through our Amazon banner or through your bookmark or your saved link and shop away. And maybe you're saying, okay, yeah, you know, Saru's fine, but I'm too busy watching Doug Jones in the 1998 classic Bug Buster starring Randy Quaid to read any comics. To which I would say, hmm, Bug Buster, a classic, certainly. I feel he shows stronger work as Mr. Saru in Discovery, hashtag Saruligans. But I would also say if you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals and you want to support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EIST pod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly amount, and you can get access to exclusive subscriber content like live shows, DS9 rewatch recaps, Star Trek Voyager recaps, and more for just $12 a year. If you join at our Ensign level, our $5 level, you get extended interviews from show guests containing off topic discussions and outtakes now uncensored. Guys, Asterios broke me. I don't have time to censor everything. My beep button finger is a stub. You bought it. You can hear the F words. You're adults. That's the deal. Uncensored from now on. You also get sneak peeks at what's coming up on the show. Show merch. And we'll thank you live on air for your contribution. So get involved. Join the crew of the USS Enterprising Individuals. Just head to patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. Anybody can join our crew. So again or no, all are welcome at patreon.com forward slash EIST pod. And as always, the best way to support the show is to tell a friend. Anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. You can check us out on Facebook or on Twitter. If you're on Facebook, please join our Facebook discussion group, Enterprising Interlocutions, featuring many more discussions like the ones we have on this show. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts? Make sure you're subscribed to the show. Give us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we'd be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. Grab your cloaks and also your daggers because the Enterprise is going undercover in the neutral zone. The Romulans have a new cloaking device and Kirk must gamble his ship and his crew to obtain it while Spock gambles his honor and his heart to complete the mission. 
Writer and comics professional Kevin Church joins the show next week to talk about an episode of Star Trek, the original series that shows us how good the Federation usually is by how bad they can be when it's necessary. It's the Enterprise Incident, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying, live long and prosper. Prosper.